Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, this is Graham Park, and you're listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the House Culture Podcast hosted by me, the Managing Editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. As ever, I hope you're all managing to stay safe in your bubbles out there. I hope we can cure some of that frustration you might be having by delivering some good vibes from the club directly into your lockdown life at home. If you're a returning listener, Thanks once again for tuning in and I hope you have enjoyed the stories that have been told on the podcast during this second season from such personalities as David Morales, Fatboy Slim, Danny Rampling, Dawn Hindle, Bongo Ben, Ashley Beadle and Smoking Joe. Also, if you haven't already, get digging through our first season where we chatted to legends such as Terry Farley, Brandon Block and Danny Clockwork. And if you're not already familiar with house culture and what we stand for, we are a collective of house music fans who have come together through our mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. Instagram is our home at housecultureNet. That's where you can get up close and personal with us and like-minded individuals from across the world. Let's get on with this next episode, yes? In this one, which is the penultimate episode in our second season, we chat to a DJ who, through his residency at the legendary Hacienda in Manchester, is one of the founding fathers of the house music scene in the UK. I'm so proud to announce that it's Graham Park. In this chat, we find out how Graham landed his first DJ gigs and discovered a passion for being behind the decks. And then the owner of the record shop just came in one day and said, I bought a nightclub. I'm like, who are you going to get to DJ? And he said, you. I'm like, no, 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 no. He goes, no, but the music you play in the shop, I think is fantastic. So that's why I ended up not being asked. 
been told that I would be DJing at the club. And within six weeks, I realised that I love DJing. The changes that this new thing called house wrought on the clubbing scene back in the late 80s. So we go into the Hacienda on that night and it's like, oh my God, what's happened here? Everyone was looked to the right state. It was like baggy clothes, smiley logos, bandanas, dungarees. I'm like, what the hell? But they all had, without exception, everybody had this wild look in their eyes. And I'm like, what the hell? And how he approaches building a set that pleases an up for it crowd on the dance floor. What I love doing is digging out the old tunes that people have forgotten about. Because let's face it, there's enough DJs who are more than happy to play the obvious classics. But when you dig out the ones that people have forgotten about, that when they hear them, they're like, oh, I've not heard this for 25 years. That's what I love doing. So I hope you enjoy this, as it's my pleasure to introduce Graham Park. House Culture. Hi, Graham. Hello. Hello. Thanks so much for joining us on the House Culture podcast. It's much appreciated. You're a DJ that has witnessed and had a massive hand in the birth of the house music scene in the UK. Not only were you one of the resident DJs at the legendary Hacienda in Manchester, but you've also exported this scene to many places around the world, whether that's through DJing or performing at the Hacienda Classical event. Obviously, we want to talk about all of that, but we also like to start at the beginning. Can you tell us about your first experiences with music when you were growing up? I was listening to Radio 1. My mum and dad always had Radio 1 on in the house. I was born in the 60s, and uh, I remember the very late 60s and early 70s having the radio on all the time and just loving the pop music. Because the, the, the variety of music on Radio 1 then was just amazing. But also my my mum used to be a singer and my late grandpa um, had his own orchestra, the George Wood Orchestra. And when I was 11, he gave me his clarinet because he had really bad arthritis, so he, he couldn't play anymore. And he gave me his clarinet when I was 11. So I learned clarinet, ended up playing in the school orchestra, third clarinet, which is the most boring. Because, um, you know, you just play in kind of the odd note mm. to, to back up second clarinet, yeah. And first clarinet, first clarinet gets all the great lines. Second clarinet is quite good, but I was third clarinet. But um, in 1977, discovered The Damned, The Clash, The Sex Pistols. And I was yeah. like, oh, my God. All my friends at school were into progressive rock, which I couldn't abide. Because I, 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 I just generally like pop music. I couldn't abide progressive rock. I mean, now I'm older, I get it. Mm. But they, were, they, they loved it. Genesis particularly I just thought it was awful so I totally embraced punk rock and then that of course meant when I heard x-ray specs old bondage up yours Mm -hmm. and the saxophone on that I just thought oh I could I could play that on my clarinet and I did so then I decided I wanted to save up and buy a saxophone now 1977 I was 14 you know, doing lots of jobs here and there because employment law was different then. Mm. I got a Saturday job mm-hmm. um, when I was 14 or 15 in the local independent record shop, which is called Bruce's. Yeah. Where was this, sorry? In Kirkcaldy, yeah. in Scotland. Yeah. And to get that job, I mean, the reason I got it is because I was always in there buying like every new punk record that came out mm. and they kind of got to know me. And then one day I walked in and said, listen, you always buy pretty good records. Do you want a Saturday job? And I was like, oh, my God, yes. 
So then suddenly there I was working on Saturdays in a record shop, saving up money to buy my first saxophone and getting staff discount on all the records that I wanted to buy. I suppose I, without realising it, that was me set on the path yeah. of, of making music my career, but not but not actually realising it. So I, I got my first saxophone and I started playing, learning to play along with all the punk records I liked. And then um, eventually my family moved to the East Midlands. Hmm. I stayed in Scotland, but then joined them after a while. And then in, when I was in the East Midlands, went went to college and then met other people who had similar taste in music. And this was like 79, 80, 81. So punk had started to kind of morph into new wave yeah and started to play in bands mm -hmm. you know the bands we played we were trying to be like i don't know talking heads or yeah. the blow monkeys or blondie stuff like that so yeah. I, I always liked Talking Heads because they had a bit of funk and a bit of soul to mm -hmm. them. Because one thing I haven't mentioned was that while I absolutely loved Embrace Punk Rock, I always quietly, because it wasn't very cool to say this at the time as a punk rocker, but I always quietly quite liked disco as well. Probably because my mum my and, and dad used to play Motown mm -hmm. records a lot and Stax records a lot. So uh, that's why I, I like Talking Heads. And then you realise that music's not black and white. You, mm. you can't just like one type of music because everything's connected. You can, yeah. you can, you, you, I mean, like Blondie's um, Heart of Glass is just a disco record, but yeah. they was they were kind of seen as this kind of um, New York new wave band. So so anyway, I connect. I was quite happy to connect all the pieces, and I played in bands. My ended up in Nottingham, and because again. Got a, got a job in Selectus because I was always in the shop buying records. And one day, and and they were, and I told them I'd worked in a record shop when I was at school. And one day I walked in and said, "Listen, we're short staffed today. Do you want to help out?" I'm like, "Yeah." So then I ended up running the singles department and second hand department. And then the owner of the record shop, whose office was on the same floor as my as the floor I worked on, just came in one day and said, "I've I've bought." a nightclub um the ad lib club which is a reggae club yeah and we're like oh my god you you fool why have you bought that club well it's, i'm going to change its name i'm going to turn into this cool underground club and we're like who, who are you going to get to dj and he said you i'm like no 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 no. i'm not a dj i play in bands yeah mm. he goes no but the music you play in the shop I think it's fantastic because as a singles buyer i was playing lots of new singles yeah and as a second-hand buyer, people would come in with these amazing classic albums, singles of all genres. Mm. And I'd to say, oh, my God, look at this. It's The Doors or it's a Salso album or whatever and play them in the shop. And so that's why I ended up not being asked, being told that I would uh, be DJing at the club. But I was Because I was only 19 or 20, yeah. I didn't want to lose my job, so I reluctantly agreed. And within six weeks... I realized that I love DJing. Yeah. And judging from the response I was getting from the audience, I was pretty good at it. So I gave up playing in bands, which did not go down well with the, the, the main band I was in because we'd had record companies coming up to Nottingham to, to see us play live. Yeah. And so the band were really annoying. Because <laughs> I was lead singer. <laughs> oh, no way. Okay. So you weren't playing sax in the band then? You were, you were I, was doing, I was doing lead vocals, saxophone, mm. occasionally a bit of guitar. I was basically showing off. <laughs> and eventually, uh, in one of the bands, I, I bought a, a Roland SH-101 synthesizer mm -hmm. just so I could play some kind of synthy bass notes and synthy noises because I, I really liked 
you know, Human League and Cabaret Voltaire. So I was not very popular, but then I became a DJ and then realised that I loved it. And yeah. then for the next three or four years, I, I did, I worked in the record shop six days a week, five days a week, running that department, which was great. If you're a DJ, if you're on the second-hand department, you're a DJ. Whoa, fantastic. Then... In late 85, early 86, all these obscure early house tracks start to appear. And of course, I would just say on the phone to the distributor, just give me one of each. Everyone in the shop, when I played them, said, oh my God, what's this rubbish? I went, it's great. And then house music kind of trickled, started to trickle in from Chicago and Detroit. And then it took over. And then before I knew it, people started traveling to hear me DJ in Nottingham. So I had to give up working in the record shop, which didn't go down well with the record <laughs> shop. Um, and then late, mid-80s, so from 86 onwards, I ended up doing uh, Wednesday nights at the Lead Mill in Sheffield, yeah. Thursday nights at the Fan Club in Leicester, mm-hmm. um, Fridays at the Garage in Nottingham, and Saturdays at the Garage in Nottingham. And then, of course, in 1988, um, after having after having met Mike Pickering in 87 at a photo shoot in London for ID magazine, got asked to cover for him at Hacienda and ended up staying. So yeah, yeah. that was my journey to, yeah. a D, to being a DJ at Hacienda. Yeah, it's, um, to have all of that grounding and musical education, like you say, everything's kind of connected musically and you were mm. kind of almost like building your rep. Um, and road mm. testing stuff, I suppose, in the record store that you were working in, putting things together that you might not have necessarily thought about doing so in a live environment, in a club. Well, what I, how I always approached DJing was um, I would hear other DJs and, you know, they just play one record after the other. Mm. But I, I um, had a friend of mine who moved to New York when he was a kid, well, when he was a teenager. And we kept in touch. It was in the days when you used to write letters to people and yeah. send them. And then I'd get my letter from New York. I'd read it and go, oh, great, and then write a letter back. And he started sending me tapes, cassettes of mixed shows. Mm. So you had WBLS and KISS FM. Yeah. And Tony Humphreys had a mixed show. Frankie Knuckles had a mixed show. And Marley Marl had a mixed show. And he used to send me those. And I would listen to what they did, uh, whether it was hip-hop or disco or early house, and go, oh, I see what they're doing. They're just like matching the records, beat mixing. Yeah. I reckon I could do that because I'm a musician. So I, I started doing that. And that's what that's what people started hearing, that this guy, this balding white Scottish guy, was playing this stuff like no one else was. And also, the, there was a big um, Midlands soul all day scene. Rock City in Nottingham, mm. Powerhouse in Birmingham, the place in Stoke on Trent. Big old, big um, soul all day scenes, and they, they, they kind of the DJs they played a lot of early house tunes. And I, I would, I would go down to Rock City, but it struck me that they would just play a track and talk on the mic, and then play the next track and talk on the mic. Yeah. And somebody said, "Oh, you should, you should be DJing at these events." But then the the organisers were like, "Well, you can't because you don't use the mic." Like, yeah, but why should I use the mic? Because oh, it gets the crowd going. Yeah. Then I put this argument that if they did let me go on, I would, I guarantee, I would get the crowd going without using the mic. So they thought, well, "Okay, we'll put you, but yeah, put you on early doors, not not peak time." So they put me on early doors. I just used to make. Because it was quite early, I just played lots of hip hop and two copies and cut them up. Yeah. Then introduced some house music, and everyone was going crazy. Because 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 now because now technology means that anybody. 
can mix two records together. There's mm. no excuse. If you hear a DJ who can't mix now, you think, well, come on, mate. But back then, mixing wasn't really wasn't a thing. And there were also, there was a lot less DJs than, than there are now mm. and a lot less clubs to play at. And you really did make a name for yourself based on your merit and your skill. There was nothing, there was no social media, you know, there was no like, um, DJs were less narcissistic than as, as they, than they are today, you know, yeah. and word just spread around. And I remember the first time I played in New York, which was in February 89 at the Mars Club. Mm. And a lot of people were like, oh, here we are, another British DJ. No, for, no, hang on. They would say another English DJ. I said, well, can I just stop you there? I'm not English. <laughs> I'm Scottish, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, but you're British. You, you British guys, you can't mix. I'm like, well... Just wait until I DJ. And then I went on in New York and everyone was just going, oh my God, you, you can mix. And that to me, that was like, I, I kind of felt that I, I was, I knew what I was doing mm. because if, if, if the home of clubbing, yeah. you know, disco slash, you know, the clubbing that the, um, the British clubs, like, like the Hacienda, Hacienda was like kind of based on the fact that New Order went to Studio 54 mm-hmm. and The Loft. Mm-hmm. And we're like, we want to do that in Manchester. So I was in New York getting respect from people. And then I did a month. I used to go to the Mars Club once a month for a couple of years. A DJ called Mark Caymans, the late Mark Caymans, would fly me out there to play there. And then one one month I was there, I'm like, Mark, that looks like Arthur Baker, because that is Arthur Baker. And that looks like John, John Jellybean. Benitez? <laughs> it is John Benitez. And who's the other guy with him? Well, that's John Roby. And John Roby mm. is a producer that I was a massive fan of because there was a band called Sea Bank mm-hmm. and he produced them. And I went, Why are they here? And he goes, Well, they're here to see you. I'm like, No <laughs> way. And then I met and I met them. And like, you know, even now, this is that was 1989. So that's like uh, over 30 years ago. And even now, you know, if I see John Benitez or Arthur Baker, they remember that night. No we, you know, so. Wow. So that was a real, that was a real buzz. And then, you know, I just, that's, I think that's kind of when I thought, yeah, maybe this, I'll continue doing this DJ thing for a while. But I never, ever, even then, I didn't think, if you'd said to me, you'll be doing this in your 50s, well into the next century. Because mm. we are, I mean, it's 2020. We are yeah. a fifth of the way through the 21st century. God, yeah. I know. Yeah, to put it like that. Yeah, if you'd said to me, when I was sat in maths at Kokori High School with my <laughs> mate Alan, you, you're going to end up traveling the world and DJing, making a living out of DJing. Mm. Well, then you're 50. All right, don't be so stupid. But somehow I still am. Yeah. And I suppose that that feeling of getting recognition from these people that you've heard mixtapes from or you've seen their names as producers on labels that of tracks that you own and then going over and then getting that recognition yourself that was obviously like you said the big boost that made you realize it was just a real buzz mm. i mean mark caymans i was aware of because he'd he'd, he'd uh, done some great stuff so and he'd kick in hacienda and said oh, i need to get you in, in new york but to meet those guys and then you know over the years todd, todd terry's first ever gig in the uk was was with me at the at the wag club in london mm. and, he, and he, he he was aware of who i was which was quite a buzz because i was like oh my god it's todd terry but um the thing is i was just a fan but you see nowadays and and, and you know lots of up-and-coming djs or people who want to make something out of dj kind of ask me for, for their advice and everyone seems so hung up on what everyone else is doing mm. right now, I just had a load of records, a real eclectic selection of records and various residencies. And I 
we'd just play records I liked. And I'm very lucky that the records I played, which I liked, the audiences who came to see me liked them as well. And there was never any grand master plan hmm. of this is what I'm going to do for the next five years. And I never, ever did it for the money. Yeah, okay, when I was doing four or five gigs a week and my fee increased something like 500% in the space of two years, that's when I thought, well, yeah, so maybe I can make a living out of this. But it was, I was just having a great time. Mm. Um, I didn't really care what other DJs were doing. You know, like, now, look, I mean, if you go to Track Source, mm-hmm. I find it highly, I'm on Track Source quite a lot, I, I find it highly irritating, really irritating, that you cannot get away from these banners flashing, this DJ's top 10, that DJ's top 10. I'm not interested. Yeah. But I know, but I know people are. Yeah. I just wish they wouldn't. Just find things you like and go with it. Yeah. Now, inevitably, that might that you're obviously going to play stuff that other people are. But I just don't look at charts at all. And people say, "Oh, why don't you? Why do you never do charts on Track Source or Beatport?" Well, I do occasionally when I when I think I've got like ten records that perhaps have been overlooked by everyone else, mm. then I might do a chart. But because I'm not prolific doing a chart on track source, that's why it doesn't come up flashing in your face. So, but that suits me fine. Yeah, and it's about having that creativity, like you said, going with what you feel is right and being that tastemaker and having confidence in that. Um, I think is great. And you don't want to be going onto track source and being like, okay, I'm just going to download. I like this DJ. I'm just going to download their top ten, and then that's what I'm going to play. There's no excitement or discovery in that. There's no, nothing better exactly. than picking through records and picking something out that you think that you just have a feeling you know will sound good, listening to it and it taking you by surprise. And you've never heard anyone else play it, but you like it, so go with well, it. Absolutely. And and then back in the days of vinyl, when the postman used to have to knock on the door and give me like a daily basis, like a big massive pile of mailers with vinyl in mm-hmm. i used to have i used to be very very specific about this i would open the mailer and take the record out and records always came with a sheet of a4 paper with this is the new single from remix by and a great loads of pr nonsense i would always open the record and play it before reading mm-hmm. what it was mm-hmm. now if it's a white label that was really exciting because you wouldn't know who it was at all. If it was, if it had stuff stamped on it, you go, okay, this is a new single from so-and-so or whatever, but never read the thing. And then what I would try and do would be uh, listen to each record on its merits. So don't read the PR, just listen to it on its merits. And what that often meant was sometimes I'd go, I don't really like this. Nah, it's a bit, bit generic. I can imagine it'll be a big record, but I'm not feeling it. And then you pick up the thing and go, "Oh my god, it's Paul Oakenfold remix." This, <laughs> don't I? You know, I mean, not. I'm not picking on him. It could be. It could be there's been Masters at Work remixes of tracks. I think mm. this sounds a bit like it's trying to be like Masters at Work. Oh, <laughs> it is. But I find it much harder to do that today because everyone sends promos via email. I've got one email address that's just for promos. So if I just look at it now, oh, there's over 100 that have just come today. And so I can't listen to all of them. So I'll scroll down yeah. and I'll pick up the, the, the promo companies or the labels or the names I recognise. But I don't like doing that because in an ideal world, I just listen to everything and pick the things I like. Yeah. But you can't. There's so many people making music, which is fine. Technology has democratised the whole process. But mm. what it means is, I think, there's more people making 
lots of very average music. Whereas yeah. 25 years ago, it would cost you money to put something out. So you're not going to waste money on something that's average. And a record company, right. you would need a record company to put something out. And a record company are not going to invest in you. They're not going to pay studio time. They're not going to pay for adverts. They're not going to pay someone to promote your record if it's an average record. So although the A&R process has had a lot of criticism in the past 20 odd years, and people say, well, who needs A&R people? Who needs record companies? We're going to do it ourselves. Great. And there are great examples of small labels that have gone on to become very, very big. Simon Dunmore famously left a high paying job to set up Defected. Defected, incredible. But for every amazing independent digital only record label there is, there's probably about 500 average ones. And I'm not knocking yeah. it. I'm just saying I I do miss the day, the old days when most things that got released were released to uh, um, to do well and and get a return on mm. people's investments. So I miss those days. But having said that, I still enjoy every now and then. I'll go right for the next four hours. I'm going to switch my phone on to on to do not disturb. Put my headphones on. And I'm just going to go through and listen to as many things as I can. And and yes, I do find some real gems. But you do rely you do rely on the good promo companies and the good labels to give you those headlines. Yeah, and to give you a good filter. Mm. But it's good that you still find it exciting, and yeah, to be able to dedicate that time for the discovery is something that keeps it fresh for you. No, yeah, not as much time as I'd like because of other commitments. But you've got to do it from time to time because you don't know that that that's why I became a DJ. That's why I got into music is to yeah. discover new things, which is why it gets slightly irritating when I'm. DJing and everyone's going crazy. You're playing new stuff or, or a great new track that you've discovered mm. and everyone's going crazy. And then one person, usually, well, usually slight over 45, shall we say, will manage to clamber up to the DJ box and go, and they're always in, they're always in, they're always from the north. <laughs> Parky, Parky, come on, get some proper classics on. <laughs> but look at the dance floor. Mm. Oh, no, get this rubbish off, get some proper. Get some proper hacienda tunes on. Which, if they just be patient, I probably will at some point. Yeah. Because because these days you got to play to the crowd in front of you. Mm-hmm. I never turn up to any gig with an agenda or an idea of what I'm going to do because you don't know who, who's going to be there. In the past four or five years, our hacienda club nights, the audience seems to be getting younger. Well, that's great because it means if you've got a younger audience, you can play more contemporary things. However, what I love doing is digging out the old tunes that people have forgotten about. Yeah. Because let's, let, let, let's, let's face it, there's enough DJs of my generation who are more than happy to play the obvious classics, mm-hmm. which is why I rarely play the obvious ones because, you know, you, you know that someone else on the bill is going to play them. Yeah. But when you dig out the ones that people remember, well, they've forgotten about them, but when they hear them, they're like, oh, I have not heard this for 25 years. Yeah. That's what I love doing. But even then, you'll always get that one person going, get some proper Asienda classics on. Well, this was a massive tune in 1992. Oh, no, no, not this. Get something obvious on. Okay, off you go. Yeah, it must be frustrating. But yeah, like you say, you play to a crowd and everyone's got to be got to be happy. I mean, if we circle back to you, you did mention Mike Pickering and the Hacienda originally. How did that connection originally arise? Had you already been to the Hacienda as a punter? Oh, gosh, yeah. When I, when I was working in Select Disc in Nottingham, mm. I would quite often go up to Manchester to the Hacienda to watch bands live because mm-hmm. I was a big Factory Records fan. And 
I also loved the, um, the Sheffield scene as yeah. well. So Human League, Cabaret Voltaire. And I used to get the train up to see bands at Hacienda. I saw New Order there, Cabaret Voltaire, Orange Juice, Aztec Camera, Joseph K, Crispy Ambulance. They were on Fatch Records, a certain ratio. Mm-hmm. And I was aware of Mike Pickering because he was in a band called Quando Quango. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like Quando Quango and played their records uh, when I was de- uh, in my DJ set. Love Temple by Quando Quango, great record. And then Mike became part of a band called Tikoi, who released Carino, which is one of the first British house records, mm-hmm. which I used to play as well. So I was aware of him. And... In 1987, we both got invited to London by ID magazine to take part in a photo shoot about this new breed of DJ who didn't use the mic and played really weird stuff. And me and him were the only DJs in that photo shoot who were not from the southeast. Okay. So you had you had Judge Jules, Mark Moore, Jay Strongman, Norman Jay, Jazzy M, mm-hmm. Nikki Holloway. So we're all so we all kind of met in the if you if you look online. I'm sure you can find it. It's like we're all dead young. This is 1987. So 1987, I was uh, 23, 24. And we all looked very fresh-faced. Mm. And we're dressed straight. You know, our, our look is just so 1987. They, they had this scaffolding. We're all climbing on this scaffolding. But Mike and I, because we were the only non-South people from the southeast and everyone else knew each other we kind of hit it off mm-hmm. and, and and he was aware of me he said oh yeah I'm, I'm aware of what you do at the garage in nottingham and i started to play more house music at hacienda i went really because mm. when i used to go to hacienda the club nights were rubbish because oh no it's more of a club now mm. and we shared a taxi back to the houston road because he was getting the train home from houston station and i was getting the train home from st pancras station so we exchanged numbers and kept in touch and then he contacted me and said, I think we should put on um, a night at Hacienda called the Northern House Review because we both agreed that the music media, all the magazines, were very London-centric mm-hmm. and were oblivious to what was happening outside the M25 because this was pre... You know, that that ridiculous myth. Well, not a myth. It's the story that certain DJs from London went to Ibiza and discovered house music. <laughs> yeah, after we'd been playing it in the North yeah. for about two years before that yeah i mean they did they did go and they did they didn't discover it they did they paired it and thought oh this is great you can't deny that but the spin that they brought it to the uk is nonsense so we put on this northern house review and and, and a lot of um, the media came up it was, it was a tuesday night or a wednesday night in uh, in february 88 and it was like oh my god this is incredible and then like i said earlier mike um rang me up and said will you cover for me when i go on holiday and i ended up staying so but then it was weird because i fired um, i'm hanging out with tony wilson the bloke yeah. from the telly who ran factory records mm-hmm. and hanging out with new order who i was a big fan of and then you know meeting people who would end up being you know like the gallagher brothers mm-hmm. and sean and Ryder and bears and rowetta and all those people and clint boone mm-hmm. So it's quite bizarre, but great. And again, there's another point where I thought, yeah, maybe this is going to be <laughs> what I end up doing. You know? Yeah, yeah. And those kind of early parties in the beginning, like how quickly did you see things changing in the club in terms of the the music you were playing, the people attending, the fashions mm. that people were wearing? Was it kind of an overnight sensation or was it a gradual build? It was quite a quick change because in February 88, when Mike and I did this Northern House Review, it was just very a great night with a great vibe and a real mix of people. But when he said to me, you've got to come up to the Hacienda and see what's happening, 
before you cover for me. I said, why? That Northern House review was great. He said, no, that was in February. This is May. Things are a bit different. I'm like, how? Well, if you don't come up, you're not covering for me. Okay. So I went up. I had to take the night off to go up. Mm. And it was different because <laughs> I walked into the Hacienda about midnight. No, about 11. And it was packed. And everyone was dressed differently. And <laughs> See, in Nottingham, Mike was playing pretty much the same music as I was in Nottingham at the garage. Mm -hmm. the, the difference was I was playing to 500 people in an upstairs, low-ceilinged room. Everyone was crammed in. Mike was playing to 2,000 people in the Hacienda, this big industrial kind of space. And everyone in Nottingham, like, like most clubs at the time, were, were dressed like they'd walked straight out of the pages of ID magazine. Very, very kind of designer and mm. very cool in a street way. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go up, go up to the Hacienda on that night and I go in the door and it's like, oh my God, what's happened here? Everyone was looked to right state. It was like baggy clothes, smiley logos, bandanas, dungarees. I'm like, what the hell? Men in dungarees, what's happened? But they all had, without exception, everybody had this wild look in their eyes. And I'm like, what the hell? And I go up to the DJ box. It, it, was, it, was, it was in the days when I could walk through the Hacienda and not, not, not get pestered by anyone, <laughs> not get mithered by anyone. Yeah. Um, a few weeks after I started, I couldn't do that because it's like, park here, park here. But anyway, I get to the DJ box, knock on the door, Mike opens the door, and he's got that wild look in his eyes. I'm like, what's going on? And of course, I go in the DJ box. He goes, this is why you had to come up before you do it. And then explained that everyone had taken this little pill, mm. ecstasy. And I can remember pretty much really clearly. There's lots of things I've forgotten in life, but I remember that night really well. Mm. And the following three Fridays when I did it on my own, I, I, I remember those nights as well. It yeah. was incredible. It was incredible, but that this was when ecstasy had started to spread. Mm. And within six to eight weeks of me doing the Hacienda, people in Nottingham would come up. Oh, Park is at the Hacienda. Let's go and check him out at the Hacienda and go, what the hell? Yeah. And discovered ecstasy. Equally, there were people, <laughs> I've never really told this story, but there was like people in Manchester who were asking me lots of questions about Nottingham. Hmm. what's the club called where is it can you put me on the guest list and then coming down they were drug dealers basically <laughs> with ecstasy and introducing that to nottingham so hmm. within six weeks yeah. within six weeks my well-dressed fashionista crowd had turned all baggy and had that same wild eye yeah. look in their face and then before you knew it it was wednesday night sheffield thursday night leicester Friday night Manchester, Saturday night Nottingham. You yeah. know what I mean? Everyone like completely wild eyed. It was it was amazing. And it did, and then it spread around the country, mm. and eventually, eventually, got to London. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it did spread. It did spread really quickly. It really did. Yeah, like you said, to go from kind of February to to May that that quickly, and like the music that you were playing. You know, you mentioned before about you know you'd be playing sometimes hip hop and whatever, and you listen to some of the surviving kind of tapes from that early era. And, you know, it's not necessarily house music all night long. It's, is, no. is that just a symptom of there not being much around or you just wanted to keep it eclectic? And what was the kind of policy? I always like to keep it eclectic, but by the time you got to late 88, and certainly by the summer of 89, there was just so much house music and the, everything, the tempo of everything went up and up and up. Probably, that's probably due to the fact that everyone was off their heads. But, but when, I, when Mike and I played together, and we never played together, we'd, we'd take it in turns. When I did those three Fridays when Mike was away, 
I kind of warmed up for myself. So that's why those early tapes are a bit more eclectic because mm. people are coming in and I'm keeping it laid back, laid back. And then in 92, when Mike went off to do M People and I moved to Saturdays, I had Tom Wainwright would warm up, but then I would take over and do four or five hours. And so then I went back to kind of mixing it up a bit, you know. But the way things have turned out in clubs in the past, certainly the past 10 years is clubs tend to want more DJs on the bill. Yeah. So the longest you get to DJ now is two hours. Some places, like I won't, I won't mention the particular brands, but some club brands just want a massive lineup. You get an hour. I hate that. An hour is not long enough at all. It's not. But sometimes you have to do it because it's a big event, mm. right? But very occasionally, I get the opportunity to do a long set. Now, I recently did a 12-hour set online. Yes, yeah, I saw that. I loved that because I literally didn't play any house music. I started at midday. I didn't play any house music until half past nine at mm. night. So I did the last two and a half hours of house, but the first nine and a half hours of soul funk, disco, bit of pop music, go-go, hip-hop. And I loved that. That's what I used to play in my early days. You know what I mean? Like mm. you, I, I dropped Talking Heads. I dropped Blondie. I dropped some Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers, all, all the old go-go stuff and then the early, early hip-hop and even things like Ian Jury and the Blockheads mm-hmm. and Texas and Duran Duran. I figured if we got 12 hours, I may as well have fun. Yeah, yeah. And everyone, and everyone loved it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So what would you say is the perfect set length then? Like an hour is too short, two hours is maybe okay. Yeah, two hours is okay because even then you're still getting into it. I mean, yeah. even in a two-hour set, it takes you half an hour to find your feet and yeah. get in the groove, you know? Especially if you're following someone who's got a slightly different style and maybe he's got the energy really at quite a high level and you've got to follow that. But I, I personally love a four, five or six hour set if I can. Yeah. I tell you what I, what I do do, what a lot of people don't realise is in the past 10 years, I do a lot of private events, like people who celebrate their 40th birthday or as, as has happened more recently, their 50th birthday. 
and they might have done quite well for themselves in life. And they contact, say, I don't suppose you do private events. Yes, I do. And then you get paid a lot of money to play at a private event, sometimes in a mansion. Yeah. Well, actually, sometimes, I mean, like, I, 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 I DJed at Noel Gallagher's 50th, which was incredible. And that's, that's when I did quite a long set with Mike Pickering. Mm. Um, and, and, and when you do these private events, if it's a proper club, a real head who used to go to Hacienda or the garage in Nottingham, they go, listen, just do what you want. Do your thing. That's why yeah. I want you here. And again, but if you play a private event with an older crowd, then it is all about playing kind of older stuff. And that's when you get to play those um, uh, tunes that you wouldn't get to play in a tour set. Mm. So the longer you get to do it, the better. Yeah. And you can kind of, like say, warm yourself up. And Absolutely. Yeah. So you were resident at the Hacienda for nine years. Yeah. I mean, 88 to 92, it closed for about three months because of the well-documented gang mm. and violent problems and drug problems. Yeah. When it, when it reopened, Mike decided he wanted to go and do something else. And then I moved to Saturdays. And then I and I stayed till the end in 97 when the, when the physical venue closed because it was so badly run. Yeah. And it just went bust. Yeah. But I, the last kind of year that it was open, I stopped doing weekly Saturdays because I was turning down so many amazing offers from other clubs like Ministry of Sound, Cream, Renaissance, Gatecrasher, mm-hmm. and turning down stuff more and more stuff abroad so i went monthly for the last year i went monthly so i i wasn't there on the last night because it wasn't one of my nights and nobody knew it was going to be the last night until yeah. it was the last night and I, I remember people faxing me or phoning me on my old mobile phone mm. saying oh you must be gutted i went not really i think i'm quite a bit of a relief that it's gone now yeah. but of course it didn't go because 97s when the building closed by 2002 People had started doing had started doing these unofficial hacienda nights, and because Peter Hook owned, he was quite clever, and he registered the name mm-hmm. as a brand. He's like, well, if people are doing these unofficial nights, they've got to stop. We maybe we should do a hacienda night. Mm. So we did. <laughs> it was amazing. And that was just five years after it closed. Yeah, and then we did the odd one, but then from about 2012 onwards. We started doing like two or three Hacienda nights in Manchester and more around the country. And it's now, you know, it's back where it was, like a major British club brand. And then, of course, as you said at the start, we ended up doing Hacienda Classical, partly because all those slightly annoying middle-aged people who just want to hear me play the obvious classics, Mm. they're one of the reasons why we did Hacienda Classical. Well, if they want to hear the obvious classics... I don't want to DJ. I don't want to play them. But what if we did them on a different, a different way with an orchestra? Mm. So I thought we'll do it as a one-off and see how it goes. Anyway, it was. It ended up being a four-year tour. But now, if if people come up to me and go, "Oh, why don't you play some obvious ones?" I go, "Well, come and see Hacienda Classical. Fill your boots. You'll be mm. happy." But it's been, but it's been massive. It's been massive. And I'm more than happy to perform those songs with a seventy-piece orchestra and yeah. a choir. Yeah. It's amazing, it really is. It's like reimagining them and reinventing them. Yeah, and you know, giving them a life that they would never have had in terms of that live environment because before it would have just yes. been someone just playing it on on a record. Exactly. It was Peter Hook who realised this. We were like halfway through our first year of touring, and he went, "You know what? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I bet these songs have never been performed live." I mm. thought, "No, yeah. they might have been done 
as PAs where the singer sang them live over a DAT tape of the instrumental or never performed live. And they were all made in studios on very cheap budgets using cheap synthesizers mainly. So yeah, you're right. And um, when Marshall Jefferson comes along and hears three of his songs being performed with an orchestra and says he, he got tears in his eyes. That's quite, <laughs> that's quite good. But then each year the, the show's got kind of bigger and better. So the first year was just like 90 minutes of tracks from the late 80s and early 90s. Mm. As each show has progressed, I've kind of widened, rather than stick to a one period, I mean, like last year's show had, had a couple of 70s disco tracks in and a couple of more contemporary tracks in and everything in between. Yeah. Including, our, we did a version of Rock the Casbah one year, which I had to sing, which was great. Amazing. And when Peter Hook can't, because Peter Hook tours with his band The Light, mm. so there was one show where he couldn't do the show. And of course, everyone was like, who's going to do Blue Monday? And the conductor and the girl who leads the choir, Audrey Mattis and Tim Crooks, said to me, you, you do it. I did it at a sound check once for a laugh. And because of that, so that was great. So I've ended up singing Blue Monday when Peter Hook can't do the show, which is quite a buzz to, to sing a song that you absolutely love mm. in a show. And I'm singing it with an orchestra and a choir. So wow. it's, it's amazing. But so, so, so funnily enough, although I never wanted to be a DJ, I wanted to play in a band, I wanted to be in a rock band or a pop band. Mm. But I got sidetracked by DJing for 35 years. And 35 years later, I've gone back to playing in a band, yeah. albeit on a much larger scale. <laughs> I've done Rock the Casbah, Blue Monday, and then my, my we do a version of Brand New Heavy's Back to Love mm. based on the remix I did. Yeah. And when I said, oh, we'll, we'll, in last year's show, let's do that. And the, all the, the, the girls in our three singers, like Yvonne Shelton, Melanie Williams and Ray Hall, they all said, you should sing the male part in Back to Love because it's based on a new remix. Mm. I went, oh, I don't, I don't think I could do that. Anyway, I tried it and everyone said, yeah, you can. So that's, that's so it's quite, it's quite funny to be able to go back and be in a band again <laughs> yeah to scratch that itch I suppose yeah and in terms of yeah. choosing the set list I mean I did go to the one you guys did at the Royal Albert Hall I think it was 16 the first track was Tikoi Carino let me tell you that was a show that was supposed to be a one-off mm. and then it was two shows because it was a, the first one was a disaster so we did it two weeks later and then it was asked, we were asked to do it at some other places and then we ended up at the Royal Albert Hall and I remember about 20 minutes into that show at the Royal Albert Hall going, no, this is just not right because this was supposed to be a one-off. This wasn't supposed to be a tour. And I think the show could be 10 times better than it is. And that was 20 minutes into the Royal Albert Hall show. Yeah. At the end of the year, Peter Hook said, we're going to do it again. And I said, right, I've got to change it, everything. And he was like, why? That means more costs. I went, it'll be worth it. And made the second year show, 2017 show, was by far and away far, far superior to the first year's show. Mm. And then, because it went down so well, it meant that every year I keep having to change it, which Peter Hook hates, because when you when you introduce new tracks, you got to pay to get them scored and arranged. Okay. And then all the stuff the orchestra can't do, which is all the electronic stuff, I have to go into a studio with someone and recreate it. Well, there's a cost to that as well. So without Peter Hook, we couldn't do it. <laughs> we couldn't do it because of the cost. Mm. But um, it's kind of worked out well. And it's really disappointing that we couldn't do this year. I mean, totally understandable because this year's show was, again, I think a better show with some new songs in there. Obviously, there are some songs you've got to keep because people expect them. But unlike 
other, shall I say say any names, other inferior dance music classical shows that just do the same set every year. I couldn't do that. I'd feel like a fraud. I really would. Mm. I do think, like, like, like being a DJ, you got to, there are some DJs who are happy playing the same set week in, week out. It's a gig, it's a living, but I like to mix it up. So we do that with Hacienda Classical. So this year's show was almost ready. The, the backing track was almost finished. The, 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 the scoring and arranging was almost finished. So everything's been on, on ice. We will resurrect that next year. Yeah. But then 2022 is the 40th anniversary of the Hacienda opening. No way. Exactly. I know. Mm. <laughs> so that's got to be worth celebrating. So yeah. I'm hoping to get permission from Peter Hook to do a whole... 100% brand new show in 2022 but we'll see yeah in terms of actually choosing tracks for the set list and uh you know who's kind of in charge of of that is it is it a group think mentality or is it like i want this one let's do it well the first couple of years when mike pickering was involved mike and i would do it together uh but then mike decided that he wanted to move on and do do other stuff so it's me i come up with the, with the the list but i have to work with tim crooks the conductor and so my start point is usually about 60 records i have to get it down to 20 but then i'll i'll run them past tim and he'll go well most of these are great there's lots for the orchestra to do but these ones here there's absolutely nothing for the orchestra to do so then i have to persuade him to come up with something for the orchestra to do and he goes okay and then he does sometimes but there's still tracks there's nothing for the orchestra to do so we dump them and I carry it and I bring some other ones in. And then once we're happy with, once Tim is happy and I'm happy, because at the end of the day, if I'm not happy, it's not going because I'm not going to mention names, but sometimes people involved in the show will suggest, why don't we, why don't we do a version of this? Mm-hmm. And I just go, no, because it's shit, right? Or no, because it's crap. No, because it's so cheesy. Or no, because those other shows, they do those songs. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I don't see the point. I usually get my way, but sometimes I have to be a bit flexible. And then once we're once happy with the tracks, I then create a continuous mix. But then Tim might come back and go, right, listen, this mix is great, but do you think you could move these tracks around? Because the key change between them would be better. Okay. And I go, leave it with me. And I'll try them and go, yes, yeah, so that wouldn't work as a DJ. So what we then do, when we score and arrange them and do the backing track, we'll change the key of the original record. Mm -hmm. But then whoever's singing it might come and say, I can't sing it in that key. (laughs) But the other girls don't want to sing it. So then we have to go back to the drawing board and then mess about with keys again. Mm. So it's literally from the the beginning of January right up to the end of May. It's such a lot of work going on. I mean, it's like two, three days a week working on the backing track and Tim's working on the scoring and arranging. And then we have to send things to the girls and the choir and get their feedback. Um, but we all we, we get there in the end. We really do. Mm. And it's, it's fantastic. Looking forward, uh, like you said, that Hacienda kind of taking nights uh, in and around the country. It's like a touring thing now outside of Hacienda Classical. I'm talking about like the big events. Mm. Um, looking forward to next year, obviously 2021 um, at Tobacco Dock. You guys yes. are doing something on the Good Friday of Easter. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, yeah, this will yeah. happen. Um, are you forgetting about the current COVID situation? What are your plans for that? Are you thinking of anything exciting, special, or is it just too far to think about at this stage? The idea is the three main nights that Hacienda used to have, nude on a Friday was me and Mike. Hot on a Wednesday was John De Silva with Mike. And then Flesh, which I suppose you'd now call 
the LBGTQ night, they were massive nights. And then Tobacco Docks got three arenas. Because that's because like, you know, it's easy just to say, oh, let's put another Hacienda night on. But we, just, we always try and mix it up, make things a bit different. So we thought we'd do the three. So Mike and I are hosting the new night in the main room with Masters at Work. Hmm. Wow. John De Silva will be hosting the hot room with Kevin Saunderson and Juan Atkins. Wow. I can't tell you who the special guests <laughs> for the flesh room are because it's not been announced. It's quite a big deal, but mm. I'll get told off uh, if I announce it now. And it's a daytime event. Mm. It starts light in the afternoon and finishes by 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. So you're going to appeal to the older clubber who thinks, hang on, this is a daytime event. I'll have some of that. But also because of the heritage of Hacienda, you're going to get the, the kind of that kind of younger crowd who are like, oh my God, it's Hacienda night in London. Because mm-hmm. we haven't done one in London for a while. And the chances are, and I'm pretty sure because it's London, there will be an after party. So you can carry on raving till six in the morning. Mm. And I'm pretty sure I will more than happily finish at Tobacco Dock and then go and carry on somewhere else. So, but I, I think it's a celebration. I mean, people will be ready for a bloody great party by oh, then, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some people some people contacted me going like, how can you be so sure this will happen? Or put in comments like, yeah, if it goes ahead. Hmm. But you've got to remember the live, the live industry, the live sector, it's like the fifth largest industry in the UK, yeah. right? Yeah. It's worth like tens of billions of pounds to the UK economy. Now, yes, we've got a pandemic. Yes, it's terrible and things aren't going to plan. But then I, I, I partly put that blame on our rather inept uh, and shambolic government. But mm-hmm. you cannot just switch off that industry for the long term. You just can't. Huh. I personally have had practically no income since lockdown. I've had uh, four gigs at the end of August, right? Mm-hmm. All socially distanced, all safe. Yeah. Smaller capacity, less people. Mm. It's not sustainable. So I, I don't think by the time April comes, I'm pretty positive, and, and the Hacienda are as well. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gone ahead and announced it. That live entertainment has to be back up and running. It just has to be. Otherwise, my accountant is very much looking forward to me to having something to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> what were your experiences like playing at those events that were COVID safe? Was it a different feeling? They were all very different. It was Four events, right? The first one was in the Northeast in a, play, a, a hotel called Hardwick Hall. And it was an outdoor event, massive stage. Well, first Norman J DJed, Heather Small played live, then I DJed. But there was 800 people. And there were 100 tables outdoors. And each table you had to book as a group of eight. And you had to stay in that group. But you could get a little area, you could dance. You had hand sanitizer station at your table. If you went out of your area, put a mask on to go to the bar, go to the toilet. And the atmosphere was amazing. Really good vibe. And it was just great playing live and, and, mm-hmm. and seeing people. But of course, the thing about my job and, and anyone who goes clubbing, it's a very kind of social experience. So there's lots of shaking hands and hugging people and hanging out. You couldn't do that. It was all people coming up to me trying to get a selfie, which is fine. But you have to well, come, come on, let's just follow the rules, you know. But as people get more and more inebriated, that's when some of the rules get overlooked. But that's what the security are there for. Go look, come on. And it's all very good natured, unlike the illegal raves that I've been hearing about. Yeah, it's been interesting how there has been this whole groundswell of illegality again of people just putting on their own parties and and just going for it for better or worse there's a parallel with the illegal rave scene of the late 80s and early 90s in that 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 
original illegal rave scene grew from the fact that at two o'clock, every club in Britain closed and everyone who was in a club that was playing acetates was on ecstasy. So therefore, you don't finish at two o'clock, do you? you want to carry on. Hence, the illegal rave thing came about. Now, the illegal raves that have been happening recently are a result of the fact that clubs are closed. However, the major difference is we didn't have a pandemic hanging over our heads back in the day. I totally understand why young people want to go and party. But the thing is, the illegal raves are delaying the legal return of, of live entertainment. That's the thing. But then you try and explain that to someone who's 19 and had a few drinks and maybe some drugs aren't as good as they used to be back in the day. They don't care. No. So I've been on a lot of radio and television um, shows and I've been asked this very thing. And, and, I, and I just know they've been trying to get middle-aged DJ who used to do illegal, who used to be part of the legal rave scene, gets annoyed at people doing what he did. But it's not, I, I, I can't get annoyed. It's just frustrating that they don't see the bigger picture. Yeah. But then that's because I'm in my 50s. I'm not in my 20s. And um, the older you get, the wiser you get, you do. Plus the fact I don't party like I used to anymore. I do sober all the time. And since not drinking while working, I think that's made me more productive mm -hmm. and more creative, bizarrely, because the story goes that drinking drugs make you more creative. Well, they might do, but when you do them all your life, they don't. And, <laughs> and to be honest, I do think, and this is hindsight experience and age tells me that Ultimately, drinking drugs kind of ruin everything, really. And I've got people who've had their lives ruined by mm. both. So to step back, it was Christmas Day 2016, I thought, this can't continue. And um, that coincided with the second I in the classical show being far better than the first one. There you know? <laughs> yeah. go. Do, do your own maths there, fill the blanks <laughs> in, you see? I want to um, catch up to the tracks that, that you've given us as mm. well. So what we always ask our guests on the house culture podcast is um to submit five tracks based on different themes for our perfect playlist on spotify it's obviously mm. every single person that we've interviewed has submitted five tracks so it's a huge beast now but you put it on shuffle and it, there's so much great stuff in there oh i'll have to have a look at that yeah we always kick off with a catalyst uh one track that whether it got you into house music or just made you want to move your feet and you've picked the fatback band Wicky Wacky, it's just the bass line. And now it was 1974 or 1973, so I would have been nine or ten. And what I love, what I love about this, I mean, I've always had eclectic taste, as I said earlier. So in the early 70s, there's a lot of glam rock, sweet mud, that glittery man we don't talk about anymore. I remember hearing this on the radio, and just the bass line stood out. But the thing is, that was 74. 15 years later, that kind of open hi-hat mm -hmm. is just all over every modern pop and dance and house record. Yeah. So I just think it's one of the funkiest things I've ever heard. And I remember, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was probably Paul Burnett on Radio 1 probably played it because he used to sometimes slip in some kind of weird, wacky, wacky things, wiggy-wacky things. Yeah, it's like pure funk. But it's so simple. Yeah. It's just so simple. It's just drums, bass. And then this hooky vocal, I just love it. And and and, and um, I, I would play that now. In fact, I probably played it in my twelve-hour set. I can't remember, <laughs> but I probably did. Um, and what's the what's the go-to floor filler for you? Right, floor filler. You know what? It's difficult because without without the context of a gig. <laughs> well, no, without without showing off or without blowing my own trumpet. In the very early days of DJing, occasionally you'd lose the dance floor. Hmm. 
or you'd think, oh my God, I need to drop something to get everyone going. But you see, in the past 20 years or so, 25 years, or certainly since Hacienda, I, I can't remember ever worrying that I'm losing the dance floor because you, it's a craft. You kind of get everyone in and you have to work the crowd and feed off the crowd. But there was one, I was just on my bike this morning thinking, what what would I, what could I pick? It's, I don't want to pick an obvious one. But, and then, because I played another track by this band on my radio show recently, I picked number one song in heaven by Sparks because when I, last time I dropped this, I didn't mix it in. It's got this beautiful vocal um, introduction before the beat comes in. And then halfway through, it speeds up. It goes from about 118 beats per minute to 130 and goes really electronic and disco. And it just, all the heads got it. They were like, oh, it's Sparks. Younger heads were like, what the hell is this? And it just, the crowd went crazy for it. So it's the num- number one song in heaven. It's mm. just one of those records that, that came on the radio in the 70s, late 70s, lots of punk rock on the radio or on top of the pops. And then this kind of stood out like a beacon of like, what the hell is this? So number one song in heaven is incredible. Yeah. Sparks are incredible. They're still they're still around now and they're still being incredible now. Yeah. And like you said, to have that moment where the older heads kind of get it and the younger people are like, oh my God, this is, what is this? This is amazing. Yeah, to, to have exactly. And of course, what I'm worried, but the thing is what I'm worried now is when, when, when you when you do get records like this, some young producer with Ableton Live will mess with it and ruin it. And just keep it one flat not. BPM throughout the whole track. Yeah, and just, yeah exactly. Yeah. Nullify it. Yeah. Um, or sample so much of it and then pass it off as their own thing. I don't get that. Disclosure did it with a Gwen McRae track yeah. last year and called it their own track. Anyway, carry on, Sunsetter. <laughs> Sunsetter. Um, yeah, go on. Tell ah, me yes. about now, your choice. I chose a track that might surprise people as a Sunset record. Now, I've sat at Café Mambo in Ibiza or Café Del Mar in Ibiza and watched the sunset and listened to a variety of DJs playing ambient, laid-back grooves with a bit of Spanish guitar and, you know, a nice vocals and stuff and that's fine but i've always taken the view that when the sun's setting that's the end of the day and we're about to go into the night time and go partying and i'm yet to be convinced that those laid back beautiful ambient tracks that djs play when the sunset are appropriate for what's about to happen mm. i don't think they are so i've chosen the larry levan uh, remix of gwen guthrie's seventh heaven because Cause it starts off quite mellow, and this, as the sun is dipping into the ocean, but then it kind of builds up and builds up, and then it kind of she, and then there's a bit which is we sail across the sea, and the sun's going in, and it gets you kind of ready for what's about to happen, which is go out and get completely smashed in a club. So not your typical sunset record, but for me, if I find myself DJing anywhere soon with the sun setting, I'll try it out. Yeah. Preferably in Ibiza, preferably in Ibiza, but not necessarily in Ibiza, because the sun, as 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 I've had to point out to a lot of people in my time, the sun sets all over the world, not just in Ibiza. It's like Ibiza have this monopoly on sunsets. No, they don't. Ibiza doesn't have a monopoly on anything. Although, um, when you talk to people who live there or spend months there, which I did for a while, and it's fine, um, Ibiza is not the centre of the clubbing universe. It's a great island. But there's lots of other great islands. It's a great sunset, but I've seen better sunsets. I do like going to Ibiza, but 
but not for any great length of time. But maybe that's another conversation for another time. <laughs> <laughs> Moving swiftly on, um, a tearjerker. Yeah, this is this is a, this is the hardest one to come up with because mm. I was thinking, oh yeah, there's the songs that are special to me with great lyrics about love and romance or sad things. And then, because I've been thinking about this a few days, and then the other day, Huey Morgan, who I listened to on Six Music, mm-hmm. played this. And I thought, oh my god, I was like this. I was in the shower listening to it. Oh my god, dude, this is amazing, and it's a record that I tried to learn to play along with when I was teaching myself saxophone as a child. And it's a Love Supreme mm-hmm. by uh, John Coltrane. It's like, it's just from the late 50s, I think it's from 58, 57 or 58. Wow. But it sounds incredible. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a real tingly back of the hairs on the back of the neck song to me. I just think it's incredible. Yeah. Not so much a tearjerker, but certainly gets uh, the emotion going. And of course, it's in the days when the tape engineer would go, ready, recording, go. And the band... We'd play because because the, the, all the original jazz recordings of the fifties were done in one take. There was no multi-track recording. There was no editing. If, if somebody made a mistake, then stop the tape. Back to the start. This is a true story. In Miles Davis, so what? In the recording of that, the drummer hits the hits the cymbal. He thinks he hits it too hard, but they just carry on recording. When they play it back, yes, he hits it too hard. But it works beautifully. Yeah. So, so now, go and listen to So What by Miles Davis, mm-hmm. right? And the way when he goes to like, and that's when the record goes to another level. Mm. But the drummer, it was a documentary, and he said, I really wished I'd just hit it gently, but I smashed it. So anyway, that, so that's just like this John Coltrane Love yeah. Supremes from that same period where yeah. everyone goes in, let's go, three, two, one, take one, take two, take three, and then the best take goes on the album. Great, yeah. great, great time. I wish, I wish now everyone overproduces and copies and pastes and always keeps going back because you can never finish a record. That's why so many things, every few years, we've got a new mix of it. Because people could sit on a plane, open their laptop and go, I'm going to go back to that track I did two years ago and fiddle with it. Yeah. And I used to think, why? Yeah. It was a great track. Leave it. Yeah. I move on to something That's Another conversation yeah. for another time. <laughs> yeah. Like you say, just to like hit record and, you know, things that, that it's perfection. You can never achieve it. No, but that's it. People try and get mm. perfection. Some of my students, when I play them an old Detroit techno record, like an old Derek May record or an old Juan Atkins record that were made on electronic drums, but those drums, those, 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 those old 808s and 909s, they drift. And then when they edit them, it's on tape, so they splice and stuff. So sometimes an edit's a bit out. Young people go, well, that's a really bad edit. I go, but it's done on tape, and it's amazing. Yeah, It's raw. It's real. And then they go, yeah, well, you could fix that in uh, Ableton or Pro Tools, couldn't you? I'm like, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> well, it's almost like that jazz element, like you said. Exactly. Electronically. That well, I mean, like... All of Derek May's original uh, Strings of Life, It Is What It Is, mm-hmm. uh, Nude Photo, they were all recorded on eight-track cassette machines yeah. and edited it with the pause button, you know? That's crazy. Um, okay, is. a last tune. Yeah, right. Sorry to disappoint everyone. I hate last tunes. I know that sometimes people expect them. I've always taken the view that how long am I playing for? Am I finishing the night? What time do I have to finish? Right, and I will build up to that time and I will play my set and finish on that time. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just never get the one more tune thing. Mm-hmm. I always think you're building up to a massive end, end on a high and go home on a high. And often, you know, when everyone's chanting for one more, what, what difference is one more going to make anyway? 
forget that, putting that to one side, if I do get my arm twisted or the promoter says, go on one more. For example, when we did that COVID safe gig, um, it was supposed to finish at a certain time. And the, the guy who owns the hotel said, no, play one more. Well, if the owner of the hotel wants you to play one more, you will. Yeah. But I like to drop a one more student that no one's expecting. So I have, that's why I've chosen Crush on You by the Jets. Incredible um, it's just a great song. Yeah. But everyone knows it. Yeah. Everyone knows it. It's been sampled, it's been remixed, it's been re-edited. But the original that I've chosen, it's got this great kind of 808 uh, rim shot um, introduction. Mm-hmm. And then it's just a great poppy 80s pop dance song, the sort of thing that would appear in an 80s movie. Yeah. And it's just great. I mean, I loved, I loved that track when it first came. I remember hearing, specifically hearing that on the radio and loving it when I was when I was a kid in the 80s and it was one of those ones where I hadn't heard for a while and then I did hear it on the radio like maybe about six weeks ago and suddenly realised that it's got that Alan Brax intro sample on it. Yeah, like, yeah, How many yeah, times yeah. have I heard this song? I've never I put know. that together. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. But you see, that, that's an example of a very creative sample. Mm. What really annoys me is some these days if somebody samples something, other people go, well, I want to know what it is. And then they find out what it is. Then they go and sample it and they do something with it. So then you get five records with the same sample. I don't, I don't get that. But, you know, I'm, I'm in my 50s, not my 20s. So <laughs> that's probably why I don't get it. I, I, always t- I, I would have thought if I was a young producer and I heard somebody sample something that was amazing, I would go, that's amazing. And then for curiosity, find out what the sample is. But the last thing I would do would then go, well, I'm going to do something with it. I'd think, well, someone's done that. I'll go and find someone else. Yeah. That's just me. I don't know. And just fall down that rabbit hole of creativity and discovery and like, okay, well, I like this sample. Where'd the sample come from? Oh, it comes from this band I've not heard of. And then just going down and discovering all this. Oh, they made this one thing that I like and suddenly opens up this whole new world. The other other thing that annoys me is because a lot of producers now use Logic. That's why a lot of dance records sound the same because they're all using the same plugins. That's why why I use Pro Tools and I sometimes use Cubase. And I avoid avoid Logic. I avoid it. I know it's great. It's fantastic. And it works beautifully on a Mac, but Pro Tools and Cubase. That's my final word on the matter. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so speaking of final words, um, we've kind of got to wrap this up. We always have one final question. Uh-huh. which is um, we are obviously house culture and live for the love of the beat and the camaraderie and, you know, mm. the collective euphoria of clubbing. Obviously, it's all on hold at the moment, but um, it, is. it will return. I mean, you're obviously part of the fabric of house music within the UK and have exported that around the world as well. What does this whole culture and scene mean to you when you look back on it? And um, what has it brought you in your life, would you say? Well, I mean, my my wife... I met through the scene. She was my agent for a while. It's and that and without me and her, I wouldn't have had two uh, twin boys who were almost sixteen. I've made some amazing friends, but I, I, there's lots of people I know that I only ever see in clubs. And over the years, you just get to recognise them, and, and that's quite nice. It's led me to travel the world without really paying for traveling the world, which is quite, which is quite nice. In nineteen eighty nine going to New York, Australia, touring with New Order, supporting New Order. God, I couldn't believe that. It was 1989, and I was told, not as told, that I was going on tour for six weeks with New Order to, to DJ on the same bill as the Sugar Cubes featuring Bjork, yeah, yeah. Public Image Limited featuring John Lydon <laughs> slash Johnny Rotten, yeah. and then me DJing for 45 minutes, then New Order. Um, wow. 
the scene was pretty much everyone made it up as they went along back in the day. It's become a lot more contrived, I think. Mm-hmm. But that's the nature with anything that becomes successful. I mean, that's why the Hacienda failed as a club because it was just made up as it went along. So I'm not knocking the fact it's more contrived because it's 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 run beautifully. There are great podcasts for people like yourselves. Technology has made has democratized the whole scene. You don't have to be supremely well known to, to to go and do stuff now. You can you can do all right just by being yourself. I think um, originality might have um, suffered a bit along the way, but I think during this lockdown. A lot of people have been beavering away and being creative and mm-hmm. some decent stuff has been made. So it's just great to be part of that scene. And, you know, I mean, people say that you know, it's nice to be seen as a pioneer. It's nice to be seen as someone who helps spread the word. But I never I never really saw it like that. I just got asked to do stuff and I went and did it and enjoyed it. And it wasn't until, you know, the, the, the early 90s that I realised that maybe I was kind of making an impression. And it's nice that after 35 years, Man and boy, <laughs> I'm I'm still getting asked by people like you to, to take part in things like this, which is quite which is quite cool. But I, you know, I just focus on my own thing, and I think mm-hmm. if people just focus on their own thing and stop worrying about what everyone else is doing, I think everyone would be much happier. You know, don't don't stress about about things that aren't really worth stressing about. Don't don't and don't read DJs charts on track source. <laughs> who cares yeah just do your own thing like you said well i think that overriding um i think the overriding yeah. output of this has been yeah just be yourself and do your own thing be and yourself, have faith in yeah. That. yeah like you said but it, importantly enjoy it if you can make a career out of it and make a living out of it like i have happy days but if you love it i mean like at the moment i've got no income but i still do my radio show do some live streams I just enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I did enjoy the time off. I'm getting very frustrated now, but I've got some gigs because I'm on the horizon. You know, this is a little blip in the in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Easy for me to say. I know that some people have really suffered financially and some people have really suffered with their mental health. You know, so people like that should be supported and, and, and helped. But, you know, fast forward 12 months. And, and another thing about getting older is time flies past so quickly. So this past seven months has, has probably seen a lot quicker to someone who's half my age, I think. And the, the plus side for me, um, I've always been a keen mountain biker, but now instead of going out two or three times a week, since lockdown, I've been out religiously every other morning and sometimes two days in a row. Great. 60K, 70K, through the woods, through the mud, yeah. on the coast. I love it. Reconnecting with nature, I think a lot of people have found that. It sorts, it sorts your head out. It yeah. does. Well, I think that's a great place to kind of end on. Brilliant. Thank you very much for having me. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for finding the time You're and welcome. sitting down with us. Cool. Thanks. House Culture. Thank you, Graham. What did you think, guys? I absolutely loved chatting to him, getting a real overview of the explosion of our scene told by a DJ who has seen it all and is still doing the damage on the dance floor to this day. Let's all keep our fingers crossed that the Hacienda event we talked about, the one currently scheduled for Easter 2021 at Tobacco Dock in London, goes ahead as planned. If it does, I'll see you down the front. I must also pass on my congratulations to Graham for winning the Innovation Award at the recent Scottish Music Awards. This was for his involvement with the Hacienda Classical event. I cannot wait to see how much this has improved when they relaunch it sometime soon. 
As usual, you can find all of Graham's choices for our perfect playlist over on Spotify. All you need to do is open up your Spotify player, search for House Culture Perfect Playlist, and here you will find all of the tunes that Parky and I chatted about, as well as submissions from all of our previous podcast guests. Make sure you follow it to stay up to date with what is now a huge selection of stone cold classics, forgotten gems and new discoveries. Once you've tucked into all of those tunes, please help support the House Culture Podcast by loving, liking, tweeting, sharing and rating or reviewing us on Apple. As I always say, this last bit is really important. Please help make a difference. If you say something good, we'll give you a shout out on the next episode. This time around, the shout out goes to Jeff Sill, who left us the most amazing review on Apple, saying that being a straightforward music nut, he's never bothered with podcasts before. However, he absolutely loves what we're doing and is now hooked as our conversations have brought back so many positive memories. Thanks for those lovely words, Jeff. Reading those made my day. Make sure you get yourself ready for what will be our final episode in season two, which is an epic chat with a huge DJ famous for his marathon sets. I can't say any more than that, apart from I guarantee that you will not want to miss this one. And to make sure you don't miss out on that, hit up our Instagram feed at HouseCultureNet or follow the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. Doing so will get you connected to other house music lovers the world over. And finally, don't forget, if you want to get in touch with me, Matt Rouse, you can contact me directly on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and see you next time. culture. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.